Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The reason Islamophobia is everywhere now is very simple. It works, right? Why wouldn't it be everywhere when wherever it's been tried, it works? It worked for Donald Trump. It worked for the people pushing Brexit. Hello, welcome to The Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, before we get into a very important and I think really great conversation, some quick book and book tour announcements. We are coming very close to the launch of Why We're Polarized, which I'm thrilled about <laughs> for it to actually be a real thing that you all can feel, see, read, hear. Um, we're going to have uh, an excerpt from the audiobook on this show. There's a lot of cool stuff coming, um, but you're going to want the book uh, to follow along. So please, if you haven't, give it a pre-order. Uh, I would be grateful. That stuff is really important to people writing and selling books. Um, but also, uh, in some ways, more importantly, I would love to see on the tour. A bunch of the tour dates are now sold out. Uh, so we're sold out in San Francisco. We're sold out in D.C. We're sold out in New York City, in Brooklyn. But we do have tickets still available in Boston, in Seattle, in Portland, and in Los Angeles. So if you're in one of those places, Go check out whywerepolarized.com or ezraklein.com. I would love to see you on the tour. I've got great conversational partners at each of those stops. So it won't just be me. So again, go to whywerepolarized.com or ezraklein.com to go get tickets for any of those uh, events. Today's show is a bit heavy, um, but it's about something that I think it's really important we talk about and see in its full scope and severity. There has been a genuinely shocking rise in anti-Muslim bigotry that is protected and generated at the highest levels of governments all across the world. Um, in America, I think we know at least some of that story. In the UK, maybe we know some of that story. But in India, in China, in Burma, in Sri Lanka, we are living through a genuinely scary moment for Muslims. And I, I think it's important not just to see what is happening to Muslims, but why and how it is changing and reshaping and connecting into our politics. To have this conversation, uh, I want to talk to Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi is a senior columnist at The Intercept. He's host of the podcast Deconstructed, and he's also the host of Al Jazeera's English Upfront. But he's somebody who's been working on these issues for a long time. He's incredibly, incredibly eloquent and thoughtful about them. And I think this conversation, if you're willing to give it a chance, because again, I know this is not the easiest topic to listen to while you're at the gym or on your commute, if you're willing to give it a chance, it shows 
both something that is happening around the world that we need to understand as one of, first, the central issues of our time, and second, something that is going to uh, rebound on us for a very long time to come, right? This kind of oppression, this amount of bigotry does not happen without there being a uh, backlash. Um, but second, I think it's important to understand, as I say sort of early on in, in my conversation with Mehdi, that a lot of what we are told a lot of the narratives that are dominant here are inversions of the truth, and particularly the narrative that we are the ones who have so much to fear from the Muslim world, when in fact the truth of the matter is it is Muslims living in countries all across the world that have a lot more to fear from other governments. And so we've created this threat-based narrative that is used, again, all across the world to justify truly horrible acts. And the reality is that the people under threat day-to-day -day, most of the time are actually Muslim people. So I think this is an important conversation. I think Mehdi does a great job laying out the scope of it and also connecting it back to what is happening in political psychologies across the West um, and across global politics in general. And I think it is really, really worth your time. As always, my email is EzraKlanshow at Vox.com. Here's Mehdi Hassan. Mehdi Hassan, welcome to the podcast. Ezra, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start here. Bigotries have cultural purposes. Um, I'm talking to a scholar of anti-Semitism in a few days about the role that anti-Jewish bigotry has traditionally played in societies. And so I wanted to turn that question to you. What is the purpose of anti-Muslim bigotry? What role does it play for those who deploy it? Wow, that's a great question. Um, we jump because, right in here yes, on this podcast. <laughs> no, it's a great question because one of the things about anti-Muslim bigotry or Islamophobia, as it's often called, is it's one of the few bigotries, I would argue the only bigotry, where you have to actually spend a lot of time justifying its existence to begin with. Half my life, when I have these conversations, is trying to persuade people that A, the term is a legitimate one, and B, it's a real problem. One of the only silver linings of the Trump era is that the second part of that, people have started to accept it is a problem. Even people before who never took it seriously now kind of can't really deny it's a massive issue, uh, especially here in the United States. Can I ask you something about that very quickly? When people deny that it is a, a term or a problem, is what they're denying that it exists or that it is unjustified? So I would argue that they're doing both. I'm quite cynical, having been arguing about this subject for more than a decade now. Uh, I found very few people who argue against the term Islamophobia in good faith. Uh, they claim it's about being worried about, oh, this is a term to shut down discussion about Islam. We're being prevented from criticizing religion. And you get this a lot from the new atheist movement. People like Sam Harris, who you've had on your show, uh, Richard Dawkins, who I've clashed with in the past. They will often say stuff like, you know, you're preventing us from criticizing Islam. And then you actually dig a little deeper and really they don't want to criticize Islam. They have no interest. I'm, I, you know, I'm all for criticizing Islam. I'm Muslim. If you want to tell me, you know, the day of judgment's a ridiculous concept or the, you know, the belief in God is an anachronism, let's have that discussion. I, I find such discussions fascinating. But no one ever really wants to have a theological discussion. Actually, when you kind of peel back the layers, they really just want to have a go at Muslims or Muslim life or something that they think is to do with Islam, but isn't really. Um, and so I'm quite cynical about the, the, the way in which it's deployed. Um, people say things like, it's not a phobia. Uh, you, it's, you know, it's not a medical condition. Why do you say Islamophobia? And yet we don't apply that to homophobia. We're fine to use that as a term. Everyone understands that means anti-gay bigotry. We don't. We suddenly become pedants, everyone, when it comes to talking about Muslims. Um, we say stuff like, you know, oh, um, it can't be a form of racism because one of the definitions of Islamophobia, just for your listeners, that was pitched in the UK last year, controversially by a cross-party group of MPs who spent months investigating this, hearing from academics 
Islamics activists, they came up with a definition which I actually agree with, which says Islamophobia is rooted in racism and is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness. To go back to your first question, what is the point of it? It is targeting um, uh, Muslims, especially visible Muslims, which is why uh, women, Muslim women in headscarves, tend to be the biggest victims of uh, Islamophobic hate crimes. And then you get the pedants and they say, well, it's not racism because Muslims are not a race. Richard Dawkins has often said this. He said this to me. And the problem with that argument, of course, is yes, we're not a race. Muslims are of all colors, all shades, all ethnicities, all nationalities. But we are treated as if we are a race. We are stereotyped in the way that races are stereotyped. We have racial uh, stereotypes projected on us. And so, for example, after 9-11, I often make this point, the first person to be killed in a hate crime after 9-11 on the 14th, 15th of September, four days after 9-11, uh, was a Sikh gas station owner in Arizona, uh, Bulbir Singh Sodhi, who was killed by a guy who said, I want to kill some towel heads today in revenge for 9-11. So for me, it is a form of racism. It does target Muslims, and it has very little to do with theological discussions about Islam, sadly. And where does it come from? I mean, th this long predates the new atheists. Uh, what are yes. the common stereotypes, tropes, prejudices that tend to persist in this form of bigotry across cultures? So unpack that in a couple of ways. In terms of where it comes from, the word itself, by the way, people people say, you know, Roger Scruton, Sir Roger Scruton, conservative philosopher, died in the UK uh, a few days back. Um, and one of his lines, which caused controversy in a recent interview, is, oh, Islamophobia is a made up word. It's made up by the Muslim Brotherhood to avoid criticism of Islam. And the late Christopher Hitchens used to say, you know, it's the Iranian government and Islamic fundamentalists have invented this term to prevent uh, any discussion about Islam. And that's not true. It goes back. Uh, Islamophobia goes back as a term to analyze this prejudice against Islam. It goes back in the English language nearly a century to 1923. It goes back in the French language to 1910 uh, when it first appeared. And it's been used more recently in the last 20, 30 years, mainly in the UK and then spread out from the UK. It was Tony Blair's government that commissioned an inquiry into it back in 1997. And they came up with, you know, the common tropes, tropes like Muslims being a threat is the obvious one, which I think your listeners will instinctively recognize. This idea that Muslims are the other, are foreign, are monolithic, that we are all one group sharing one worldview, and that, yes, we pose a threat to you, your children, your culture, your way of life, to Western civilization itself. And so when you have those tropes, that then manifests itself, to go back to your earlier question, into policies to deal with Muslims which are authoritarian, at home and involve mass surveillance, involve repressive measures, involve civil liberties, abuses, and abroad, bombs, bullets, wars, invasions, occupations, targeted killings, because Muslims are seen as A, a threat, and B, as this monolithic community of others. And just very quickly on the history, you mentioned this predates the New Atheist, definitely. It also predates 9-11. One of the great myths is that this all started on the 12th of September 2001. People woke up and said, why do they hate us? These Muslims keep blowing up our buildings and therefore we must take the war to them, which is completely not true. 9-11, of course, escalated Islamophobia. It metastasized in terms of uh, its political consequences, its geopolitical fallout, the Islamophobia industry that I hope we can talk about today, which plays a big role in all of this. But pre-9-11, Ezra, it was a big issue. In fact, when the Cold War ended, uh, Willy Kleiss, who was the Belgian head of NATO, he said in the early 90s, Islamic fundamentalism 
is as big a threat as communism was. It's as dangerous as communism was. And, you know, people on the left would argue that's because superpowers like the United States, like NATO, need an external enemy. And they can't operate and avoid in a vacuum. And when communism went, Muslims became the new boogeyman. In fact, there's a New York Times headline. I knew I was coming on the show today, so I went back and Googled it. And you can look it up for yourself. 1996, it's still online on the Times website. And the headline is, Seeing Green, the Red Menace is Gone, but Here's Islam. 1996. That's an amazing headline. <laughs> Are you kidding the me? Times. That's an actual New York Times headline? Yeah. Wow. Um, I want to hold on the threat piece for a minute because I think that's the version of this that people are familiar with, particularly yes. in the U.S. And one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation today is that one thing that you see in these types of debates often is an inversion of who should be afraid. The way the situation is portrayed, um, certainly in America, is that Muslims or the Muslim world poses a threat to us, right? 9-11 being the, the, the most salient example. But what you actually see right now, if you look around the world, is that the world poses a terrible threat to Muslims, that there is a level of state-sanctioned anti-Muslim policymaking, violence, bigotry that is a much deeper threat to um, the average Muslim living just almost anywhere now than the average Muslim is to anyone else. And and that you see that a lot in, in, in bigotries, that they work off of this reversal of who has the most cause to be afraid. Anti-Semitism being a classic uh, example. Anti-Semitism being a very classic example. I, I completely agree. And what's interesting about the Muslim situation today, which is slowly starting to get some coverage, to be fair, more and more people are talking about the fact uh, about what's going on uh, in places like India and China and Myanmar and even Sri Lanka. But also, this is where 9-11 does play a crucial role because pre-9-11, again, you did have repressive measures towards Muslim minorities even pre-9-11. Look at the Balkans in the mid-1990s. There was an actual genocide in Europe of white people, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Europeans who were Muslims, the Bosnian Muslims, massacred in places like Srebrenica, uh, women raped and expelled from their homes, refugees for, for decades. Um, that happened pre-9-11. But what happened post-9-11 is the United States war on terror, so-called, allowed every government around the world that didn't like its Muslim minority to jump on the Bush bandwagon and say, well, we're fighting the same war that you're fighting. And every Muslim group we don't like is the same as the Muslim groups you don't like. And you saw that even in Israel, where Ariel Sharon said in 2001 after 9-11, he said, our battle with Arafat is the same as the American battle with bin Laden, which was an absurd analogy at the time. But, you know, people were trying to see what they could get away with. The Chinese, a classic example of that. When we talk about the Uyghur situation today, a million Uyghur Muslims, um, ethnically Turkic, religiously Muslim living in Xinjiang province in China, more than a million of them, according to the UN and other human rights groups, being held in, I don't know what to call them, concentration camps, detention camps, re-education camps, prisons in Xinjiang province. And you look at the history of that conflict, and a lot of people in the West are waking up to it and are rightly condemning China, including the Trump administration, to be fair to them. It's the one issue they've been good on. But what we don't do is there's not enough self-reflection to say, well, what justifications are the Chinese using here? In fact, straight after 9-11, Ezra, the Chinese government went to the UN and said, you know what? If the US is fighting al-Qaeda, we're fighting a, a, an offshoot of al-Qaeda called the ETIM, the East Turkestan Islamic Movement, a group that no one had ever heard of. No terrorism scholars had heard of them. No China watchers had heard of them. And yet the Chinese government claimed this was a major part of the bin Laden network. 
And by 2002, the UN and the US had listed this group as a terrorist organization. And since then, every time the Chinese go after the Uyghurs, they say it's an anti-terrorism operation. Why should you be allowed to drone terrorists and we can't re-educate them in our camps? I want to note something that you just said that I think is contrary to what has become the, the dominant conventional wisdom here, which is in the Trump era, a lot of people look back on George W. Bush, particularly George W. Bush right after 9-11. And things he really did say and efforts he really did make to stop the aftermath of 9-11 being just a wave of anti-Muslim bigotry. Yes. But the way they created the concept of the war on terror, the axes of evil and so on, created a context that was so malleable that a lot of other countries, a lot of other players, and in Washington and even inside the Bush administration, a lot of people who were bought into a clash of civilization rhetoric were able to create this conflation of a war they wanted to fight on terrorism with a war they wanted to fight on the Muslim world. And a lot of this weird debate that has burbled in the background for a long time, and Trump was part of it, about whether or not, and I forget the exact wording, everybody's always arguing about whether or not terrorist attacks should be called Islamic extremism or Islamic terrorism versus just terrorism. It's part of this debate. It's part of this question of, are you going to fit this into a narrative that can be used this way, or are you just going to call this terrorism and treat it as as a part not of the Muslim world, but a part of the terrorist problem, which includes white nationalist groups and includes um, just general nationalist or regime changing groups and so on. I think you're right to put your finger on it, Ezra. And, and one thing I'd throw up, and I'd be interested to hear your view, your view on this. So I wrote a piece in, I'm trying to think when, December 2015 for the New York Times, I wrote an op-ed. Uh, it was shortly after I'd moved to the US. The Republican presidential race was in full swing. Trump was in the lead. Ben Carson was in second place. And I wrote a piece saying, I miss George W. Bush. And I got attacked by my fellow lefties for that headline in the Times. And, I, and it was a piece saying, for all of his many sins and all the people he killed, one thing Bush did, as you said, was after 9-11, he went to a mosque in D.C. He said, we're not at war with Islam. Muslim Americans are our friends and our fellow citizens, etc., etc." Whereas Trump at the time was saying, ban all Muslims from America. Ben Carson was talking about a Muslim Brotherhood takeover of the U.S. government. Marco Rubio was talking about shutting down Muslim cafes. Ted Cruz was talking about sending police into Muslim neighborhoods. Chris Christie was talking about turning away Muslim refugees. Uh, John Kasich was talking about setting up a department of Judeo-Christian values. And I was kind of like saying, you know, in this Republican Party, Bush actually looks like a moderate. He wouldn't be able to run right now because he's not as anti-Muslim as everyone else. Um, and a, a lot of the pushback I got at the time was along the lines of what you've just mentioned, which is, well, yes, he wasn't openly bigoted. He wasn't saying making crude anti-Muslim slurs or smears or conspiracy theories, but he did invent an architecture of domestic repression in which Muslims in the US were surveilled, detained held up at airports, had their mosques spied on, etc. And of course, abroad, he killed a hell of a lot of Muslims. And it, now the argument becomes, you know, is it better for Trump to say the quiet part loud and just own up to what previous presidents, including Obama, were doing, which is basically targeting Muslim groups, but saying this is not a war on Islam or Muslims, it's a war on a generic idea, a noun on terrorism? Or do you own up to it and say, actually, this is a war against certain groups of Muslims and lots of Muslims are going to die in the process? Um, and I'm always torn on that because on the one hand, obviously, you want people just you know to say it as it is. On the other hand, there are huge implications to talking in the way that Trump does. One of those being the massive rise in hate crimes, anti-Muslim hate crimes here in the US and across the world as a result of his brazen Islamophobia? I don't think there's one answer to a question like this. I will say no, that I think, I think the answer, the, the kind of synthesis for me is I miss 
George W. Bush's relative personal decency compared to yes. Donald Trump. Um, I don't think there's any doubt that nope. he himself was a more thoughtful and, 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 and decent man. But I think George W. Bush did orders of magnitude more damage than Donald Trump, at least up until this point, and we'll see how the the coming yes. year and years play out. Um, he did orders of magnitude more damage than Donald Trump. And something I wonder about with Trump, uh, and I've, I've made this argument and I get a bit of pushback on it, but I think it's true, is the crudeness and lack of strategic planning through which Donald Trump uh, voices the worst things that he represents has a couple of actually salutary effects. One is that you can see they're really there and truly powerful. Um, Donald Trump forces things that were submerged in political movements that were given a nice polite face and dressed up in a suit and tie. He forces you to see what they really were all along and that they were the energy powering that movement. I've made the argument many times in this podcast that the Republican Party for a very long time has been an unusual machine that converts the energy of white identity politics into a format usable for tax cuts for the rich and corporate deregulation. But one thing Donald Trump has done is really rip that, rip into that and show, but this was where the energy was coming from. This is a part the conservative base truly cared about. They cared about the defending the country from immigrants, from people who are not white, from social change. And then Donald Trump, because he's not good at any of this, he's not does not run an administration well, does not build support for the things so he wants to do carefully. Yes, yes. Um, he's not able to act on the scale that George W. Bush did. Um, you know, I, I, you go back to the Iraq War, and Bush and the Bush administration spent actually a very long time building the case for that. It was wrong. It was one of the worst things we've ever done in American foreign policy. But they carefully went about through lies and half-truths and, you know, pulled together allies and Tony Blair was on their side and so forth. One good thing about the way Donald Trump has handled Iran is he's done none of that. And so there is absolutely no no, um, huge movement of public support for what he's done in Iran. I just saw a poll the other day that 55 percent of people think has made us less safe. So I think there's a real way in which the the way that Donald Trump operates lets you see the worst and makes it easier to combat the worst. Whereas George W. Bush, who is in every way I can possibly think of a better human being than Donald Trump, and even when he was doing bad things, I think he believed they were the right things to do, that they would make people safer, they'd be good for the world. I, I take his motivations as as decent. He did much more damage. And so I think that to the extent anything has emerged into nostalgia for his presidency, I think it's terribly misplaced. But nostalgia for the presidency to be held by a man who has some kind of moral core does not strike me as crazy. Yeah, a man, a man who doesn't cheat on his wife shortly after she gave birth to their child, of course, you know, basic stuff. I would pick up on the points you made there about, number one, I'm with you in the school of thought that says it's incompetence that's keeping us from basically full-blown fascism. If Trump was a competent authoritarian, we'd be in a lot more trouble. In terms of Bush and going back to the point about Muslims and what happened abroad, I mean, and also to take your very interesting point about, you know, the victimhood and the inversion of victimhood. If you look right now, and and one of the things Muslims get called, and I have to deal with this all the time, anytime I write a piece about foreign policy or US war crimes or any kind of grievance in Palestine, you immediately get, oh, Muslims, victimhood, you're victims. And actually, a lot of Muslims say this too, because there's this concept of internalized Islamophobia, this idea that let's all stop being victims, which is great. Let's stop being victims. That doesn't mean you don't call out what's going wrong. When you look at, for example, the war on terror, quote unquote, you have plenty of studies showing that the death toll 
among Muslims in places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan is anywhere between a million, two million, maybe three million. Uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility put out a report last year saying two million would be a conservative uh, estimate. Brown University has a similar study in their study of the war on terror in terms of death since 9-11 in the Muslim majority world. That's a phenomenal amount of people killed as a result of a US-led war. Then you throw in the groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, and we all know that their number one victims are not Americans or Brits or French. They are Muslims living in those countries where they're operating. Muslims are the number one victims of these quote-unquote terrorist groups. And then you go number three, which is what you kicked off the show with, which is Muslim minorities living in authoritarian countries now, like China, like India, like Myanmar, which is seeing the Muslim minority as a useful scapegoat to project all of its fears onto, uh, to make it responsible for all the problems in that country and to justify its own domestic repression and, of course, divert the populace, which is always a good thing to do when you have a minority to bully. So on kind of th- multiple levels right now, um, you're seeing Muslims getting you know killed, massacred, raped, detained. And just from a purely strategic point of view, even if you're not a bleeding heart liberal, even if you don't give a damn about any Muslims around the world, this is not good for world security or world stability. Because all of this comes back to bite someone in the ass. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. I actually want to move into talking about some of it in detail. So let's begin with India. I think that a lot of people listening to this podcast know in a vague way that Modi is an anti-Muslim politician. But before we get into what he's doing now, you've done some great writing and reporting on where he comes from. What is a context that creates Modi? Tell me a bit about that. What, what is Modi's background? So, yes, it's very important to understand Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India's background, in a way that it isn't that important to understand Donald Trump's background. Donald Trump is an Islamophobe in a very superficial way. For him, it's a kind of instrumentalist thing. It's He doesn't actually have any core ideological beliefs. He sees bashing Muslims as a way to keep himself in power and keep his base on board. For Modi, it's very different. Modi is a hardcore ideologue. And you have to really understand the ideology that is driving what's happening in India right now. Modi is a member of, a leader of, a 
party called the BJP, which is India's kind of right-wing Hindu nationalist party. But more important than the BJP is a group called the RSS, the Rashtriya Swamsevak Sangh, which is a kind of paramilitary volunteer organization, which is basically the ideological backbone of the BJP and the volunteer army for the BJP. It was founded in 1925. And the founders of the RSS consciously modeled their organization, Ezra, on European fascists of the interwar years, on the black shirts uh, of Mussolini's Italy, on the Nazis, Hitler's Nazi party in Germany. In fact, one of the founders of the RSS, uh, one of the leaders at that time, M.S. Golwalka, uh, he said that Nazi Germany displays, quote, race pride at its highest and is a good lesson for us to use in India. Another leader of the RSS, another Hindu nationalist leader said Germany had every right to resort to Nazism and Italy to fascism. He compared India's Muslims to the Jews of Germany. A former member of the RSS was a person who assassinated Mahatma Gandhi because he thought Gandhi was too pro-Muslim. So that's the group and the ideology that's been around for nearly 100 years. They never really had much traction in India. They never were able to form a majority government. And yet Modi, who joined the RSS very early on, I think he started training with the RSS when he was eight years old. He was a full-time volunteer, a pracharak for the RSS by the age of 22. He's a lifelong member of this party, and he makes a successful career as a politician in the state of Gujarat as chief minister of the BJP. That was the scene of anti-Muslim pogroms in 2002, when more than a thousand Muslims were massacred in the streets by Hindu nationalist mobs who, according to human rights groups, Modi basically allowed to run free. It was such a bad performance by him as chief minister that the US government refused to allow him entry until he became prime minister. People are unaware that Modi was banned from the US and the UK up until he became prime minister and both governments uh, had to drop those bans. I'm sorry, hold on. I actually just want to hold on that for a minute. He was banned because he had permitted or was believed to be complicit in such a high level of anti-Muslim violence that even the US and the UK couldn't look past it? Yes. So the US State Department had huge concerns. The ambassador didn't want to meet with him. I think it was the Commission on International Religious Freedom uh, in the US that had put him on some list. And he was eventually, he, he could not get a visa to come to the US. Uh, he had to do kind of video briefings. But then when he became prime minister, obviously for diplomatic reasons, everything had to be dropped. I recognize why that has to happen, but I just, it is a recurrent pattern in politics that I find so chilling, which is that almost any sin can be wiped away by winning. Yes, that's a very well put and depressingly well put. It's not just winning, but what's really annoying is had he just won and you had US and UK governments begrudgingly doing business with him or having to let him in because he's the prime minister of India, fine. No, 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 no. They went the whole other extreme and embraced Prime Minister Modi of the BJP government of India in his first term with open arms. And I'm not just talking about Donald Trump here. Barack Obama went to India to do rallies with him. He did a massive event with him. I think it was in Central Park when Modi eventually came to the US. It was very close to Modi, uh, as was the British government, French government, Australian government. You know, at G20 summits, they were falling over one another to shake his hands because they saw India as this great economic opportunity. And India is so good at um, advertising itself as the world's biggest democracy, um, which it was, uh, you could argue, prior to the BJP takeover, which is now hollowing out Indian democracy. So Modi wins. He then wins again last year. Um, he's the first prime minister in decades to win back-to-back -back majorities in the Indian parliament. Indian governments tend to be coalition governments, the parliamentary system. 
And second term, and sorry to say to your American listeners, if you're worried about what a second term of Trump looks like, go look at India, where once he's re-elected, because first term was bad. You had lynchings of Muslims uh, called cow lynchings. This is Muslims who trade cows. Hindu nationalists were saying the cow is a sacred animal. We're going to kill you in the street. And they were killing Muslims, literally lynching them in the streets. Uh, there was a massive increase in anti-Muslim hate crimes, anti-Christian hate crimes, because the BJP's philosophy is that the India should be a Hindu state. Therefore, Muslims, Christians, they're all targets in, in some way or another. So you had a massive increase in hate crimes against multiple minority faith groups. But it was still kind of, kind of below the radar. Modi was able to kind of have some deniability, some distance. Second term since last year, we have seen an astonishing and rapid transformation of India in, in, in months. This is what's so scary what's happened. From Kashmir being locked down in August, you know, 8 million people having the internet cut off, uh, having roadblocks, checkpoints. In fact, the entire constitutional status of Kashmir was was revoked overnight by the BJP government. And, and can you explain for a minute, because Kashmir holds a special status, why, why that is happening specifically to Kashmir? So Jammu and Kashmir, which is what the Indians call the state of Kashmir, is a disputed territory between India and Pakistan since independence back in the day in 1947. Uh, both sides contest parts of Kashmir. Kashmiris themselves, many would argue, don't want to be part of either country and want to be independent. Uh, for India, it's always for secular India, for the Congress party governments that came before the BJP. It was very important to keep hold of Kashmir because it was to show that, look, we can't lose the only Muslim majority state in India. It's important to identity and it's important for us not to let Pakistan have it. But they always offered some form of autonomy to the Kashmiris in terms of, you know, foreign policy will be conducted by the center, but you can do what you want in domestic policy. There was restrictions on who could buy property there to try and keep the demographic balance. It was very delicate, very sensitive. But the BJP and the RSS in particular had always dreamt of getting rid of any special status for these dastardly Muslims in Kashmir. And they did it last August in the dead of night. And they shut down the entire state. And even today, Ezra, it's still not fully open. People still don't have... There are a lot of kids who can't go to school. There's a lot of people with no internet access. The media, foreign journalists can't get in and out easily. Foreign politicians can't get in and out easily. There's reports of mass detentions, torture. You have three former chief ministers of the state, Ezra, Indian politicians who are under house arrest or in prison. People, one of them was actually in government with the BJP. They're all locked up. This is in the world's quote unquote largest democracy. And the rest of the world has said very little. That's Kashmir, which we at least know a little bit about. Then there's Assam, Ezra. I don't know how to describe Assam. Assam is a state in northeastern India, 30 million people. And the Indian government last year decides to say to the people of Assam, you know what? We want to know which of you are citizens and which of you are illegal immigrants. You've heard that language before. Which of you are illegals? In fact, the home ministry in India referred to Muslim immigrants in Assam and elsewhere as termites and infiltrators. You know, the language, I would argue, of genocide, of demonization and dehumanization. They pass a law called the Citizenship Amendment Act, which says if you are an undocumented migrant or refugee in India, if you're Hindu, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, Parsi or Christian, you can have Indian citizenship down the line. If you're Muslim, nope, not allowed. Go back to wherever you came from. It is the first law in India's modern secular history which discriminates on the basis of religion and which makes citizenship effectively conditional on your religion. Muslim immigrants, Muslim refugees need not apply. Not only that, but they have this national register of citizens. This is a democratic government, as we're not talking about the Chinese government here. They have a national register of citizens which is supposed to weed out illegal immigrants, the NRC. And in Assam, 
they come up with a list of people who they say, you're not really Indian citizens. You have to prove you're Indian citizens. You know how long the list is right now, Ezra? Two million people literally stripped of citizenship overnight, effectively rendered stateless in August 2019. Human rights activists have called it the largest single act of disenfranchisement in human history. Two million people, many of them Muslims, denied Indian citizenship and nationality for no good reason. Oh, you don't have the right papers. You have to prove that your family were in India prior to 1971. A lot of these people live in villages, rural areas. They're not literate. They don't have documentation. And yet they're being detained in camps, in camps. And what is the argument the Modi government makes publicly on this? So I interviewed a, a BJP uh, senior figure last year and I, I made this point. I said, you know, termites, infiltrators, stripping of citizenship. How is this not, you know, how do you justify this stuff? They sound very much like Trump. They say we're allowed to control our borders. We have to deal with illegal immigrants who are depleting our resources, undermining civic cohesion, and we have to do what we have to do to protect India from terrorism and from illegal immigrants. And that's what we're doing. That is their argument. They jump on an American-led bandwagon, sadly. And you made a point a couple minutes ago. We're going to get to China and the Uyghurs in a few minutes. You made the point that the Trump administration has actually, as have Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress, there has begun to be activity in America about what China is doing to the Uyghurs. Around Modi and um, what he's doing to Muslims in India, there has been much less. Um, Modi always strikes me as a nightmare version of Trump in that he has these dual reputations as on the one hand a anti-Muslim bigoted populist. Uh, he like he has a populism and a, almost a, at times a quasi-fascism emerging from uh, emerging from his bigotry, and he is also a highly competent economic modernizer, or at least has that reputation. I'm not so deep. Reputation, in the, yeah, the record doesn't match, but yes, yeah, I, I'm not so deep in the Indian economic arguments to, to to be able to adjudicate it. But he is greeted on the world stage as through that side of him. And that has created like a cross purpose where because people want to deal with the economically modernizing India, they do not want to admit the other side of what Modi is doing. And so there's been much less international pressure and particularly in America, as you mentioned, there's been there have been quite a few more uh, politicians on both sides who are eager to stand with Modi. There was almost this um, or I think there was this howdy Modi uh, thing that happened in Texas and Tulsi, Garb Tulsi Gabbard was going to be there. Then she didn't end up going. But but that, Trump that, went, that's been a Trump real— Trump went and welcomed the Indian prime minister on American soil. Trump was the warm-up act, Ezra, for a foreign leader. That's how much he likes Modi. That's how much um, they're willing to defer to Modi. That he turns up, Trump goes to Texas to welcome a foreign leader in front of 50,000 Indian Americans. And not just Trump, plenty of Democrats turned up. Some didn't turn up at the last minute because of protests in their constituencies. It's not. Tulsi Gabbard is probably the worst apologist for Modi, but there are plenty of apologists for Modi in both the Republican and Democratic parties, as you say, because partly he's seen as an economic modernizer, partly because they have a very strong lobbying group here in the US, which makes the case for the Indian government very eloquently and very animatedly and with good resources. Um, and partly because, you know, to come back to the start of this discussion, Modi's victims are Muslims. One of the things I often tell people is you, you don't want to make a noise about Modi. Point out to Americans that Christians are also being uh, repressed in India. That might get you a hearing maybe uh, with some Christian evangelical groups in the U.S. because nobody gives a damn about Muslims. Yeah, you, you, you make the point often. I think it's true that anti-Muslim bigotry is one of the kinds of bigotry that is easiest to get, to get away with in Washington. 
It's respectable racism. Uh, the day we're speaking is the day after Donald Trump tweeted out an image of Nancy Pelosi in a headscarf uh, and Chuck Schumer in a turban. He retweeted some troll saying that they're corrupt Democrats who are pro Ayatollah. Um, I haven't seen uh, a big hoo-ha in the media. It's been covered in the media, but it hasn't got even one or two or three percent of the attention that, you know, Ilhan Omar's comments about APAC got uh, or any of the other crazy stuff that Trump has said about other minority groups. Right. And imagine if he had retweeted something that had them in blackface or wearing yarmulkes. It would yeah, have had a could, lot more attention. And Ezra, you can say that I count. But I can. yes, other groups, if other groups, and I won't say which groups, but if other groups had been targeted by Trump in that way, we would rightly be up in arms. But unfortunately with Muslims, there is this kind of shrugging. And this goes back pre-Trump. I mean, when I was in the UK, Ezra, just very quick, quick story. In 2007 or 8, I can't remember what year it was, I was a commissioning editor for Channel 4, which is a TV channel in the UK. And we did a documentary about Islamophobia. People were talking more and more about it. It was a few years uh, after the 7-7 bombings. It was a big problem in the UK. And one thing we did to try and get people to really recognize how insidious it is and how normalized it had become, even in 2007, 8, we went out, Is Peter Oborn, a great reporter in the UK, who's a right winger, but very good on this issue. And we went out on the streets with a camera crew and Peter into a shopping mall. And we took real headlines from the British press, from the Daily Mail, from the Sun, from the Express about Muslims. Muslims want to tell us how to change our schools. Muslims want to take away Christmas. Muslims want to, you know, are a threat to you and your children. Real headlines. And we changed the word Muslim to Jew, black and gay. And we put out fake headlines and people were shocked. People would literally stop in the street to look and go, what the hell is this? And then we'd go, oh, it's fake. Here's the real headline about Muslims. And they would literally go, oh, that makes more sense. I mean, it's just this. We've just become kind of almost immune to this now. Just way before Trump came along, uh, Saeed Avasi, who was a Muslim politician in the UK, she talked about Islamophobia having passed the dinner table test. You can just talk about it with friends and family, make anti-Muslim remarks. Nobody will bat an eyelid. Let's shift focus to China. Who who are the Uyghurs? If people have maybe heard that word but don't know much about the group, so the Uyghurs are a Turkic. Uh, ethnic group, uh, religiously Muslim, living in China in Xinjiang province, which they often refer to as East Turkestan, which was, depending on whatever history you want to read, conquered, occupied by the Chinese Communist Party, I think in the late 1940s. Uh, they've held it like they've held Tibet under pretty repressive measures as part of China for decades now. And post 9-11, as I mentioned earlier, the Chinese government very cleverly decided to portray and depict all secessionist or pro-independence Uyghur groups as part of a bin Ladenist, Al-Qaeda, global Islamist conspiracy and crack down pretty repressively. In recent years, though, there's been this kind of escalation by Xi Jinping and the current Chinese government to really stamp down on any kind of Uyghur identity, Muslim, religious, cultural, language. And it's reached a level now, which is kind of, to call it Orwellian, dystopian, doesn't really do it justice. It's on multiple levels. This, the entire province of Xinjiang, which has about, I think, 11 million people off the top of my head as a population, there's reports of more than a million Uyghurs or more than, you know, almost one in 10 of the population being detained in camps, which the Chinese call uh, you know, education camp. I want to hold it. Detain- I hate the word detained for this. I know. I hate. They, I, I they're not. The right they, they, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't go somewhere and get stopped. They're somehow getting put in the camps. Yes. 
Do, do we know much about that? We don't know the details because they end up there in different ways. Some of them are arrested for crimes or accused of being part of groups. A lot of them are just uh, brought in in kind of ad hoc fashion to be, quote unquote, re-educated. And the New York Times and other media organizations got hold of the, quote unquote, China cables recently, which is the, one of the biggest document dumps ever from out inside the Chinese Communist Party, which shows Chinese communist officials saying to one another, when people ask you where are their family members, you know, tell them they're not criminals. We haven't, we haven't arrested them for a crime but they're just being educated. We're saving them from extremism. And the language that's used about religion, to come back to the Islamophobia point, the Chinese, when you read these documents, when you hear from people who have managed to escape the camps, become uh, sought asylum abroad, they treat Islam as if it is a mental illness, a disease that needs curing. That's how Xi Jinping and other officials talk about it in private. Um, that is what they see these camps as doing. The, but they, their argument is, you drone terrorists, we prevent them from becoming terrorists by taking them away from extremism or what you and I would just call their religion. To the extent that there's million people or more in camps, but it's not just in the camps. We've heard about the camps in the West. In Xinjiang province itself, Uyghurs in their homes are being forced to host Ezra, I couldn't believe this when I first read this, but it's been documented by multiple organizations and Uyghurs themselves. They are being forced to host in their homes Chinese Communist Party officials from the Han Chinese ethnic majority who are sent to live in Uyghur homes. In some cases, to sleep in the beds with the Uyghur women at night, to monitor them 24-7 and to check, are they reading Quran? Are they praying five times a day? How long is their beard? Because long beards have been banned in Xinjiang province. Uh, veils have been banned. Uh, Uyghur parents have been banned from naming their children, naming their sons Muhammad. Uh, children have been banned from going to mosques. Government employees have been banned from fasting during Ramadan. This is what a lot of people are calling a quote-unquote cultural genocide in Xinjiang. These are an entire group of people being targeted from morning till night, whether in their homes or in quote-unquote detention camps, because they're Muslims. What do we know about what happens in these camps? Do they attend Chinese re-education class all yes. day? It's, well, there's a mixture of things. It depends what level of threat they think you are. Some people have been horrifically tortured to the level of, you know, medieval style nails being ripped from their fingers. Those people who have escaped, some are in Sweden. Uh, one Uyghur woman activist here in D.C. told her story to The Washington Post recently. Some of them are being sterilized so they can't have children. Uh, there's reports of rape, of people being beaten to death, you know, vicious torture on one level. And then there's the kind of dystopian Orwellian stuff where people are being held in camps, but morning till night, they're forced to watch propaganda videos. They're forced to declare their loyalty to Xi Jinping. Uh, they're lectured about the dangers of Islam. They have to shout Communist Party slogans and sing Communist Party songs before they can get breakfast or lunch. I mean, the UN has called it political camps for indoctrination. I want to take a moment and break the break the wall here. I know if you're listening and you're you're this far in, this isn't an easy conversation and this isn't easy stuff, but I think it is important to get a sense of the global scale of what's going on. And so I say that, um, and this is in some ways the one I'm treading the most. But uh, let, let's talk about Burma and the Rohingya in Burma. Um, and in particular, I want to talk about this one because there are a lot of things that happen in the world that are grim and horrifying, and few of them are as dispiriting as what's happened there with a Nobel Peace Prize winner who is understood as a great hero of humanitarianism, uh, becoming the prime minister and becoming functionally an apologist for a genocide. 
And that interacting, by the way, with I'm talking to you from San Francisco, um, with the with Facebook becoming the platform for a genocide, um, an American company, super rich, everybody's stock is vesting, it's all great, but somewhere else, uh, the harm it's doing is arguably far, far greater than the good it has ever done. So, just tell me about the the big picture of what's happened to the Rohingya. So the Rohingya Muslims are a minority in Myanmar or Burma, uh, residents of Rakhine State. They have been subjected to violent attacks by the military there since 2011, 2012, but they've been discriminated against in a kind of almost South African apartheid-style way since 1982, when uh, the Burmese government, the military junta at the time, passed a citizenship law that recognized eight races, Ezra, and 130 minority groups. Think about that. Eight races, 130 official minority groups, yet somehow they couldn't find any space to recognize a million Rohingya Muslims because the Burmese see them, the Burmese government see them as interlopers, as foreign uh, refugees, uh, migrants who have come from Bangladesh. They're dismissed as Bengalis uh, who have come from next door, even though they have roots in the country going back centuries. And in fact, in Burma, you can't even say the word Rohingya. Aung San Suu Kyi, this Nobel Peace Laureate who's become an apologist and enabler for genocide um, and who even turned up at the International uh, Court of Justice in The Hague uh, just a few weeks ago to defend her country against charges of genocide. Um, she asked the US government not to use the word Rohingya in any of its official documents or meetings. That's how much part she is of this discriminatory state-sponsored system which treats the Rohingya as lesser people. They're denied access to employment, education, healthcare. Uh, they had to get permission to marry. Uh, they were subjected to a discriminatory two-child policy. And then in 2017, the military take it to the next level. You'll notice a common theme here running through, Ezra. Indian Muslims, they were discriminated against before, but it escalated in the last couple of years. Uyghurs have been discriminated against a while, but it's escalated in the last couple of years. Rohingya, discriminated against for a while, but in 2017, it goes up to the next level where the Burmese military come into Rakhine State in Western Myanmar. They launch this campaign of unspeakable terror and violence. Crimes that are, you read about this stuff and you cannot believe what you're reading, that this is happening in the present day. Men hacked to death. Children literally burned alive. Women, young girls raped, sexually assaulted. 700,000 Rohingya, conservative estimate driven from their homes. Uh, tens of thousands killed. The US State Department has called it ethnic cleansing. The UN, uh, a fact-finding commission by the UN, accused the Burmese military of genocide. The US Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC sent a team to investigate and said, yes, this is genocide. When we say never again, no, it's happening again. And this has happened in front of us in a country that most of us know very little about to a group that most of us know very little about and led by a woman who we all know as this great champion of human rights. But turns out she was never really a champion of human rights, Aung San Suu Kyi. She was actually a Buddhist nationalist and a racist like a lot of the other people who run uh, Myanmar. I have two questions on this. So one, I, I think that if you know Buddhism in America and it's sort of American, Northern Californian, mindfulness, semi-secular variants, right, Richard Gere, I think people don't always realize that there is actually like Buddhist ethnic groups, Buddhist nationalists um, who do terrible, terrible things. And for her to be one of them, I think, is one of the great uh, horrors of, of this age. Let me ask you, when she went to the International Criminal Court and she defended um, Burma against charges of genocide, how does Aung San Suu Kyi defend what is happening under her watch? 
Uh, Their defense is very simple. Their defense is uh, twofold. Uh, Number one, we're fighting terrorism. Oh, there you go again. Terrorism. Uh, Everyone wants to jump on the terrorism bandwagon. We are fighting terrorists. The Rohingya groups are terrorist groups, and that's all we're doing. And number two, the reports of everything else is, quote unquote, fake news. Oh, heard that phrase before as well. Notice both arguments based on two US presidents. The terrorism argument from George W. Bush, the fake news argument from Donald J. Trump. And that's basically all they have. In fact, her office, Aung San Suu Kyi's office, when there were reports of mass rape going on in Rakhine, they put a headline on their website, on the official Burmese government website, on her personal office's website. And in capital letters, Ezra, it said, fake rape. In English, fake rape they put up for the world's media uh, to see their response. She was once interviewed by a friend of mine at the BBC, uh, a Muslim uh, anchor. And after the interview was over, she didn't realize her mic, she was in a remote studio and Suchi didn't realize her mic was still on. And she turned to an aide and she said, you didn't tell me I had to be interviewed by a Muslim. So that's the kind of raw prejudice that this woman has, that a lot of the people in Burma have. You mentioned kind of Buddhism. As I would say about Muslims, the vast majority of Buddhists are very good people, are not violent, are not racists. But there are factions within every religion which politicize religion, uh, which use religion to discriminate against others, which see other religions as a threat. And there is a hardline, far right-wing Buddhist nationalist movement. There's a guy called Wirathu in Myanmar. Uh, I think Time magazine put him on the cover a few years ago, called him the Burmese Bin Laden. And he's one of the kind of quote-unquote religious ideologues who's been pushing this Islamophobia in Myanmar against the Rohingya and other Muslim groups. And as you mentioned, Facebook has played a massive role in this. One of the questions you asked at the top is, you know, how is this happening? What are the consequences? Facebook, social media plays a massive role in why so much of this is happening now. In Myanmar, in 2018, the chair of the UN fact-finding mission said that Facebook played a, quote, determining role in the violence. Think about that, something we use just for fun, to connect to your friends, to share videos, make money off of, as you pointed out, played a determining role in a genocide because it helped spread hatred, conspiracy theories, incitement to violence, quote unquote, fake news. Um, It helped the demonization of a minority group in Myanmar. So let, let me ask about this, because I think to the extent people have heard about what's happening in Myanmar, what they've heard is that it is like the Facebook genocide. It's also happening through WhatsApp and Twitter and other things, but it's been it's been tied very much to Facebook. But one of the big questions that is lurking over this conversation we're having and that I was going to get to to some degree at the end is why so much of this in so many different places now? And one of at least hypotheses I've heard is that it actually is about social media, social media, which is an endless generator of identity, social media where the slingshot to virality is conflict between identity groups. Um, Modi famously is the I believe he's a politician with the most uh, Facebook followers in the entire world. He's beyond Donald Trump, beyond Barack Obama. Um, we're going to talk about Brexit and uh, America, but these are these are heavily social media fied political systems now. And uh, anti-Muslim bigotry is very, very viral, and it is not policed um, to the extent that these platforms police things like white nationalism, which they do a little bit more now than they did. They very much don't on anti-Muslim bigotry. How much do you think the argument that the reason we are seeing this in so many places right now is actually because social media has been a lit match on the gasoline that was already sitting there in this conversation is true. A hundred percent. I'm a believer in that. I wrote a piece for The Intercept recently, which was an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg, making this point that we're, what we're talking about right now, which is when you go around the world, when you go to India 
and you see that Facebook has played a massive role. Uh, I think Avaz, the activist group, has called Facebook in India a megaphone for hate against Muslims in Assam. I believe Islamophobic content is the biggest source of hate speech on Facebook in India. Uh, in Myanmar, the UN said it had a determining role. Uh, the UN Special Rapporteur has said that everything is done through Facebook in Myanmar uh, when it comes to all of this violence and hate. When you go to Sri Lanka, where there's been anti-Muslim violence. Sri Lanka is a place where there's been massive anti-Muslim hatred on Facebook. And then you go to the West, you go to the US, you go to the UK, you see the same thing. And you know, okay, correlation is not causation, but it's a pretty big hint, as the old saying goes. And I can't believe that in all these countries where it's so ramped up in recent years, they have high degrees of social media, especially Facebook penetration. And you're seeing that as a way of people coming together, especially people, um, you know, WhatsApp in India is a massive phenomenon there. You can't blame it all on social media. Obviously, people are to blame for the acts of violence they commit. But if you want to talk about why now, I do believe it is a perfect storm. We talked earlier about, you know, the end of the Cold War in the 90s. You see Islam being the green threat from that New York Times headline at 9-11 and you know, the war on terror uh, gives you that militarized dimension where George W. Bush creates the entire infrastructure for both domestic and foreign uh, Islamophobia. Uh, and then now, post-Trump and the, the rise of nativist politicians, which is partly to do with Islamophobia, but is also driven by multiple other factors, both uh, social and economic and stuff you've talked about on your show and I've talked about on my show. Um, that is also comes into play. So you have multiple factors all coming together in a kind of perfect storm in recent years. And the last thing, and social media then gives it that kind of escalating impact. And then the main point, and my friend Todd Green, uh, the academic uh, who advised the State Department on Islamophobia, he's written a great book on, on, on the fear of Islam. He makes the point, the reason Islamophobia is everywhere now is very simple. It works, right? Why wouldn't it be everywhere when wherever it's been tried, it works? It worked for Donald Trump. It worked for the people pushing Brexit. That is a horrifying and true statement. Indeed. Uh, I had Mark Zuckerberg on the show. Um, now it's probably 18 months, two years ago. And I asked him about the Rohingya massacres. And, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is somebody who cares about the world. He felt, I think, broken up about it, was thinking about it. But like always, the way he understands it is as some kind of like bug on the platform, which is we have this platform. The platform has become big enough that virtually all forms of human interaction and communication are happening on top of it. Um, human beings have always had genocides. They have always attacked each other because they were of other races or other faiths or other nationalities. And so the problem with when you create something as big as Facebook is you will get the best of humanity and you will get the worst of humanity. And the thing you just want to do is create some tools to, to know when the worst of humanity is happening and, and intercept it. Um, one of the things that came out of that was he said something offhandedly that made people realize they're actually able to read what uh, people thought were encrypted Facebook Messenger messages um, and, and try to see if people were trying to incite violence in, in, in Myanmar. And the thing that I felt thinking about that conversation afterwards and, and watching how things have played out that he doesn't face up to is the way that what works on Facebook uh, is identity, um, identity in a positive way, but identity conflict much more powerfully in a negative way. And that as you were just saying, what does it mean when you have a new communication platform, um, which is where human communication primarily takes place, that is mediated by algorithms that are looking around to pick up on what forms of communication create the most intense emotional reaction? And one of the forms of communication that does that is anti-Muslim bigotry. So you're not just getting what has always happened in humanity. 
you are selecting for certain kinds of communication over other kinds of communication. And one of the kinds of communication you are selecting for in political conversation is this form of semi-acceptable bigotry. And yes. the world we see around us is part of the result of that. And unfortunately, as you said, the key part, I think, there of that analysis, there, which I, I, I totally subscribe to, is the, the semi-acceptable form of bigotry. That's what makes it so easy to coalesce online around such groups. When you talk about, you know, Muslims being radicalized online and joining ISIS, well, when you look at the white young white men who are getting angry and radicalized online and joining white nationalist groups, a lot of it is on kind of anti-Muslim forums, anti-Muslim groups. You look at Anders Breivik and you look at some of these white nationalists who look up to Breivik, who carried out the massacre in Norway in 2011. You look at the manifestos they leave behind. The New Zealand shooter last year who killed more than 50 Muslims in those two mosques in Christchurch. Uh, you read the stuff they say, that is stuff that is being shared. This is not, you know, I hate the phrases, I hate two phrases, lone wolves and domestic terrorists. There's nothing domestic about them. There's nothing alone about them. Uh, this is a transnational network of people, transnational ideology, transnational movement, and they are sharing stuff. And it's not even just white people, Ezra. Here's a, here's a fact a lot of people don't realize. Breivik, when he wrote his, uh, I think, thousand-page manifesto. 1,500, if I remember what I read about pages, it. More than 1,000 pages. Wild. He devoted more than 100 pages in that manifesto. In more than 100 pages, he mentions India and the RSS and the BJP and the Hindu nationalist movement. This is a white guy, Christian crusader living in Norway. But he's invoking Hindu nationalism because he says, we're all on the same side. We're all on the same team fighting these evil Muslims and their left-wing cultural Marxist enablers. And that is definitely something that can only really happen online. Because I would argue there's no way that you're having interfacing between Breivik and, and Hindu nationalist groups and linking. He links to the, uh, I think the RSS or the BJ, I can't remember which one, one of their websites in his manifesto. So it's transnational. And yes, it brings people together. And Muslims is the obvious target. Facebook won't regulate things like Islamophobia, because as we said at the start of this discussion, there's a debate about, well, what is Islamophobia? So for example, if I set up a Facebook group saying, kill all Muslims, yeah, my group might get shut down. If I set up a group saying death to Islam or Islam's a cancer, and I'm saying it's basically the same thing. I've got the same ideology and the same purpose. Facebook aren't going to shut that group down. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. 
you can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Tell me what's happening in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is another fascinating country where you have multiple ethnic groups. We've heard about Sri Lanka's violence for years, where you had Tamil Tigers, terrorist group in in Sri Lanka, uh, fighting against the Sinhalese majority. But people don't realize there are Muslims in Sri Lanka, quite a big minority uh, group of Muslims. There were horrific attacks on churches in Sri Lanka. You'll remember uh, last year by groups inspired by ISIS. ISIS took responsibility for it. And the backlash, there was already Islamophobia, again, simmering below the surface. But the backlash against Muslim-owned properties and Muslim shopkeepers and Muslim communities has been vicious. I mean, in terms of actual, you know, mob violence. And again, when you look at the activists on the ground, they are saying, we went to Facebook, we begged them to stop sharing this stuff, to stop allowing hate groups to organize online. And it's a real, real problem. And you mentioned, you know, Zuckerberg, well-intentioned, liberal yeah, fine, all of those things. You know, maybe it's ignorance. I don't know him personally. Maybe he just doesn't get how bad it is on the ground in some of these places. Or maybe, you know, the worst case scenario is he just doesn't give a damn as long as he gets a hug from Modi when they have their conferences together. That's fine with him. Um, but the reality is, I mean, I had Ilhan Omar on, on, on the Deconstructed Live show a few months ago. And I said to her, I said, do you hold Mark Zuckerberg responsible for all the death threats that you get online and in real life? And she said, yes, he has put a target on my back. We've reached out to Facebook. We've asked them to do something about this. This is America's most prominent Muslim politician, Ilhan Omar, you know, first term congresswoman, gets more death threats than you and I can even believe. Multiple men arrested for trying to kill her. Credible death threats. One of those men who was arrested with a bunch of ammo in his house had been spending, according to a Guardian investigation, a long time online, spreading anti-Muslim conspiracy theories, subscribing to anti-Muslim hate groups on Facebook. You said a moment ago that the reason people use anti-Muslim bigotry is it works. And in, in my book that's coming out, I have this media chapter. And one of the things I, I talk about in that is what politicians do different media organizations choose to highlight? And we're talking here about Facebook, but something that is very clear if you look at Fox News is they talk about Ilhan Omar all the time. She is constantly on Fox News. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is too, but Ilhan Omar, they love talking about Ilhan Omar. And as does, of course, Donald Trump. And the reason is she's not a powerful Democratic member of Congress. As you say, she's a first-term member of Congress. She's not chair committee. She does not write the main legislation. She's not on Nancy Pelosi's leadership team. But what she does is she, because of who she is, because she's a you know Somali immigrant who's Muslim and wears a hijab and speaks with a soft accent. She's visibly Muslim. She is visibly is Muslim. And so they like it symbolically, it is able to tie both the the anti-Muslim fears, the anti-Muslim bigotry that animates a lot of the Fox audience with liberalism. 
And I, I feel like when you see that, it's also a reminder that this stuff is not just new to the world of social media. And oftentimes yes. what social media is doing is amplifying. Uh, I, I always think it's very worth noting that when you look at what sites overperform the most on Facebook, Fox News is always there. This idea that yep. Facebook is some liberal monolith is, of course, Daily wrong. Wire, that Daily Wire is, is very hot there. That the kind of reactionary sentiment that exists within societies is very well catalyzed on Facebook by traditional media players or new media players who um, are are capable of playing into those sentiments. And one of the things about Facebook where and Twitter and other things uh, and, and other new social media platforms where they do not want to police this stuff too much because they want to allow for, for robust public debate, but is that they are also creating much clearer incentives for this kind of focusing. And it gets very dangerous, as you're saying, with the people who have done death threats or potentially even planned attacks. They are focusing um, attention on these individuals. They see in the analytics how much it works for their audience. So they do more of it. It gets amplified by the yes. social media platforms and you end up in a very dangerous situation. The analytics are deeply depressing. And I see that when I write about Islam, even if I'm writing positively, I see people are reading it maybe for the wrong reasons. And I see the comments or the emails that I get. I always remember, I think the New Yorker, if memory serves me correctly, did a big profile of the Daily Mail uh, a few years ago. And in that, they spoke to a source, anonymous source at the Mail Online, which is obviously one of the most successful English language news websites in the world. And they said something like, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, we know what people click on. It's cats and Muslims. And it was that was years ago, and you know this has been a trend for a while. That's an that's um, and, an amazing and, quote. Yeah, and I think it was three things. I can't remember what the third thing was. Cats, Muslims, and something else. Um, but the but you know this is and this is mainstream media organization, as you say, predates Facebook, and the media, old fashioned legacy media, has been one of the big drivers of Islamophobia. To go back to the start of our discussion and talking about timelines and why now and why globally, uh, definitely the media, not just the Daily Mail in the UK or Fox News in the US. But across the media, the quote unquote liberal media. Um, I did a study when I was in the UK of the UK media. We got Cardiff University School of Journalism to do a study of all a thousand articles written across the British press between the years 2000 and 2008. And they found in that period, eight year period, two thirds of the stories published on Muslims identified Muslims either as a source of problems or as a threat. More than one in four stories suggested Islam was dangerous, backward or irrational. And references to radical Muslims outnumbered references to quote-unquote moderate Muslims, Ezra, by a whopping 17 to 1. 17 to 1 over an eight-year period. Now, if you're telling me that doesn't have an impact on people's minds, how they see the world. And remember, this isn't just about terrorism. This is about halal meat. This is about the women's headscarf. This is about Muslim schools. Remember, this is a cross-the-board culture war. This may, it may have started out on you know, terrorism and Al-Qaeda and security debates, but this is now an all-encompassing, quote-unquote, clash of civilizations. Muslims are coming here and changing our way of life. And that's why Ilhan Omar is such a particular threat to them, because, yes, a woman in a headscarf is sitting in Congress making laws about us. You have you know, the creeping Sharia, hashtag creeping Sharia, this right-wing conspiracy theory boogeyman that Muslims are trying to bring Sharia law in through the back door. Multiple states in the US have passed laws saying there will be no Sharia law in this state, which is absurd because there's no threat of Sharia law. Oklahoma, Ezra, was the first state to pass a law a few years ago saying no to Sharia law. I mean, the Muslims in Oklahoma make up, I think, around 1% of the population. You're more likely to be judged by Jedi law in Oklahoma than probably <laughs> by Islamic law. But this is the big bad boogeyman, which predates Trump, the Republicans and the far right, with the help of liberal enablers, with people like, I'm sorry, Sam Harris, 
People like Bill Maher uh, have unfortunately fanned the flames of Muslims as the other, Muslims as a threat. You have liberals talk. Look at France, for example. We haven't talked about France in the show. It's the Western country where Islamophobia is perhaps most rampant, more even than the United States. And it's a cross-party endeavor there. It's left and right are bashing Muslims day and night. The right bash Muslims as terrorists, as illegal immigrants, and the left bash Muslims because they don't respect animal rights with the way they kill their animals. They don't respect women because they force them to wear veils. Uh, they don't respect secularism. It's, a, it's an across-the-board, multi-pronged, 24-7 assault on the Muslim minority in France. And that, again, goes way beyond security and way beyond the far right. The one, there are two things I want to say here. One is when we were going through the period in American life where uh, states and cities were passing these resolutions that there will not be Sharia law, it was hard to take it seriously because it was so on its face absurd. Uh, for one thing, if you have the political power in a state legislature to pass a resolution saying there will be no Sharia law, then I can assure you nobody has the political power in that state to impose Sharia law. <laughs> like the thing itself is self-negating. But it's this way in which – and you see this with a lot of bigotry. There's a lot of this in the anti-Semitism um, online and, and offline where things that are deadly serious poses jokes, where impulses that can quickly turn uh, into something very ugly seem like farce. The first time you see them, the people pushing them – Donald Trump being actually a very good example of this – seem ridiculous, right? This uh, yes. billionaire with his orange hair coming down his golden escalator and saying Mexicans are rapists. Like it, the whole thing seemed absurd. Huffington Post put him in their celebrity section, right? They were only going to cover him as a celebrity. And then you see that it looks really déclassé, right? And so sort of elite journals and others like dismiss it because of course that wouldn't happen. And then it turns out that its crudeness is part of its power. Um, but I want to go back to the Daily Mail because it's a good bridge to uh, the UK, which is something I did want to talk about here. Do you think Brexit happens without the anti-Muslim sentiments that the Leave campaign worked to invoke? No, I don't, because it was such a narrow result. I'm quite, I, I feel quite confident in saying it was such a close result that no, if you didn't have the anti-Muslim drive, I mean, multiple things would have changed the result, as with the Trump election, but it was clearly one of the drivers of it. Anyone who tells you otherwise is just lying. And there's a classic clip that I would urge your listeners to go watch on YouTube if they really want to see the horror of this, that Channel 4 News interviewed a uh, pro-Brexit, a Leave voter, the day after the referendum, I think it was in June 2016, in the old former industrial white working class town of Barnsley. And they asked him, why did you vote for Brexit? Was it to do with trade deals or what was it? What was it? Why did you sovereignty? Why did you vote for it? And he said, it's all about immigration, right? It's not about trade or Europe or anything like that. It's all about immigration. It's to stop the Muslims from coming into this country. Simple as that. Think about that line. You left the European Union, countries like Poland, Germany, Italy, France, to stop Muslims. That's how much the scaremongering about immigration and refugees and Syria uh, played a role. You know, Nigel Farage, who is a leader who was at the time the leader of the UK Independence Party, one of the big pro-Brexit voices in UK politics, far-right politician, stood in front of a infamous Nazi-like poster, which uh, subsequently became known as the Breaking Point poster, which showed just teeming masses of brown people trying to come into the EU. Um, you had uh, Boris Johnson, now Prime Minister, fear-mongering about Turkey joining the EU. They had ads, Ezra, which said, Turkey, population 76 million is going to join the EU. You don't want 76 million Muslims coming into the European Union Christian club. So yes, Islamophobia played a big role in that. A lot of the people on the pro-Brexit side were, are Islamophobes, people like Boris Johnson, who's now prime minister, who says things like Islam is the problem and 
mocks Muslim women and inveils and compares them to bank robbers. He's now the prime minister of the UK. That's his reward for being an anti-Muslim bigot. No, I don't think Brexit would have happened without Islamophobia playing a massive fear-mongering role amongst the populace at large. I, I want to emphasize something you said in there because I think it's really important to understanding politics in this era. Um, there have been a bunch of studies, Shadi Hamid did one, but, but, but others have done many, showing that the driver of far-right populist parties um, in the U.S. and in Western Europe is immigration. These parties, they happen in times when the economy is good and they happen in times when the economy is bad. They happen under very different situations with social services and how many social supports the country has. They happen in places where there are opioid crises and in places where there are not opioid crises. But the thing that is always a very primary motivator of them is immigration. And in all of them, one of the key ways immigration is weaponized into fear is Muslim immigration. Uh, and this had a very, again, a somewhat farcical version in the 2018 election in America where Donald Trump began trying to freak people out about this caravan coming up from, um, from Central America. And when it wasn't working that well, he began to say, and, and, and others around him said, well, we don't know. There could be jihadists in this. Yep. Middle Easterners in the yeah, caravan. Middle Easterners in the remember caravan. They they, remember, remember they said, we found a prayer rug near the border. Do you mm -hmm. remember that? That was a classic and, one. And so, I mean, this was a public thing. Like, reporters were there. Like, the caravan was public. They were coming to turn themselves in legally and ask for asylum. And when they really needed to turn up the fear, what they said was not that this is full of Central Americans who are fleeing gang violence and economic despair. What they said is, as you say, there might have been a prayer rug nearby. Maybe there are jihadists in here. Maybe there are Middle Easterners in here. And then in Europe, this has been much more salient because you've had much more direct uh, Muslim immigration from the Syrian refugee crisis and, and, and other things. I think that when people hear immigration, they code it, particularly in America, um, even when you're hearing it for other places, they code it the way we think of it here. Well, immigration is an economic issue, immigration as, you know, Mexicans coming in. But it's often, um, particularly in Europe, the immigration issue isn't actually a Muslim issue. It's, a, it's about protecting your country from Muslim in invasion and inversion, right? The, the, this whole idea that these countries are going to become filled with Sharia law. Well, there was a very famous um, French book a couple of years ago imagining a France that had become uh, like a, basically a, like, a, like a Muslim super state. There's a lot of fevered imagining around this. Uh, you mentioned the horrifying manifesto of, of the shooter. All of that stuff relies on this idea of replacement birth rates. Um, that, those were the first words of his thing. Um, if you go back to Pat Buchanan's book from a couple of years ago, um, I'm unfortunately right now blanking on the name of it. But it, you, it, it's had a comeback recently because it basically it's like a smart version of Trumpism. It's like a thoughtful version of Trumpism, but it's very racist. And it's all about replacement birth rates, this idea that the Muslim world is going to outbirth the Western world, and then it's going to send all of its people in through immigration, and that's going to take over these places and turn them into Muslim states. And the problem, of course, is that this is something, again, it's easy just to blame it on the far right. And yes, it is true. Today, the animating force that unites a lot of these far right parties, whether you're the French National Front or the UK Independence Party or the Danish People's Party or the Finns Party or the Swedish Democrats or the Vox Party in Spain or the Northern no League in Italy. No relationship, to be clear. No relationship to you <laughs> and your website. Uh, or the Northern League in Italy or uh, the Orban government in Hungary. 
definitely it's Islamophobia and targeting Muslim immigrants in particular, which brings them together in a way that anti-Semitism used to bring them together. What far-right parties realised a while ago, the smarter ones, maybe not Golden Dawn in Greece, but the savvier ones like Marine Le Pen in, in France, who got rid of her dad, the anti-Semite, they realise that anti-Semitism doesn't work anymore. It's, it's still a taboo in most parts of the Western world. Not all of them, but still is. Whereas anti-Muslim hatred, well, that's respectable racism. You can get mainstream support for that. The media is already doing it. It's already an open market there. Um, you know, when Donald Trump came down the escalator and did what he did and said the Muslim ban, he was speaking to a, an audience that was primed for this stuff as our far-right European groups. So they decided to substitute. They've said this. Nick Griffin, who was the leader of the British National Party and neo-Nazi party in the UK, he said this openly. He said, let's stop talking about Jews. Let's talk about Muslims. Much easier to attack Muslims. So they've coalesced around Islamophobia. Logically, it works, sadly. Um, Marine Le Pen managed to become, you know, come second in the presidential election, astonishingly, uh, not long ago, thanks to Islamophobia. But you can't just say it's all about the far right. You then have to take a step back and say, when you, especially when you talk about like Syrian refugees and immigration, um, and one thing I would, very briefly, I would slightly push back against, I don't believe it's immigration that drives these parties. Because like, for example, in Hungary, there are no immigrants. In Poland, there are no. It's a perception of uncontrolled immigration. Yes, I think, that, I think that is a fair, a fair correction. Raw there. numbers on the ground. It's not people, you know, there's this myth that liberals push through that, oh, if you see your community changed, you react badly. Well, a lot of these people live in communities where there are no immigrants. Um, Poland being a classic example. I interviewed a MP on my Al Jazeera English show recently, uh, Dominic Tarczynski, who's become a hero of the kind of MAGA right. Um, and he's an MP and an MEP with the Law and Justice Party. He was very open about it on the show. It's one of the most astonishing interviews I've done. My jaw was literally dropping and it doesn't drop very often because I interview a lot of weird people. But he was openly saying, you know, we don't want any Muslims coming to Poland. We don't want any Muslims because they're going to blow themselves up and we don't want Sharia law. This is a, a member of the governing party in Poland in 2019 saying this stuff openly, proudly, without any coded language. Um, and this has been enabled, I'm sorry to say, by mainstream politicians, both on the centre-right and the centre-left. You know, we could talk about Marine Le Pen, but it was Nicolas Sarkozy when he was running for re-election who said, and I quote, halal meat is the number one issue facing France. He said that with a straight face, that halal meat is the number one issue facing the French people because he knew that's what, how you get what, support. What was the next sentence he said? I don't know. Not that you literally know, but I mean, what was his actual argument there? Oh, his argument was that the secular fabric of French society is being destroyed by Muslims who won't integrate and it's changing our way of life. And that's what the meat issue is. That's why Muslim kids are in some schools are being told you have to eat pork or nothing else. Um, and then you had in Britain, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, who were not kind of card-carrying racists, but to go back to what we talked about earlier in the context of George W. Bush, did create an entire infrastructure of surveillance, security, um, uh, criticizing immigration, which did feed into Islamophobic tropes and did make people more afraid of, of foreigners. And Angela Merkel, who did a great thing by letting in a million Syrians, but years earlier, she gave a big speech saying multiculturalism has failed in Germany, which was code for too many Turks here. Um, this is across the board, Western politics, even in the US, even in the US, Ezra, where Donald Trump, 2016, is running the most Islamophobic campaign in modern American history. Bill Clinton, well-intentioned, I'll give him that, well-intentioned, turns up at the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia and he gives a speech and he says in that speech to the crowd, if you're a Muslim and you love America and freedom and you hate terror, stay here and help us win and make a future together. We want you. An astonishing line for any Muslim listening to that. Number one, the condition, if you love America, if you're Muslim, conditional. Number two, you should only stay here if you want to fight terrorism. Uh, my daughter is a Muslim American. She has no role to play in the war on terror. She's supposed to leave. 
Uh, and number three, who is Bill Clinton to decide who stays or goes? And this line, we want you. Do you notice that? He's, he's, he, I'm sure he has the best of intentions, but he's othering automatically. We, the non-Muslims, you, the Muslims. Our guests. Right. It's an it's an othering wrapped in language of inclusion. Indeed. And, and you know, you saw that. You've seen that, you know, Barack Obama's refusal to go to a mosque for eight years because he was worried about being portrayed a Muslim. He waited till his eighth year in office to step foot in a mosque. Um, you saw Actually, that. With liberals. It, I want to note, though, that's something we haven't talked about here. And I, I, you just jogged my memory on it. But a constant refrain against Barack yes. Obama. The secret the, Muslim like, president. That was it. He was a secret Muslim. I mean, it, it was an One interesting thing. One in four thing. Americans believe that, Ezra, till and, the day he left office. And a majority of Republicans believed it for, yes. at least in some polls, for some time. But the fact that that was where this went, right? I mean, people thought, well, you know, when he ran, America won't accept an African-American president. Turns out they did. And so then this secondary decision had to be made. Well, maybe what they won't accept is a Muslim president. And maybe we can say that he's Muslim. Maybe that is the way to correctly... We can remind people of his correctly... middle name, which Trump did recently. Uh, you'll notice he brought back the Barack Hussein Obama. Here's my favorite stat, which I actually found in a Vox article a few years ago um, from Phil Klinkner, the political scientist, who said that the number one way of identifying a Trump voter, a white Trump voter in 2016, uh, more than party ID, more than class, more than educational background, was whether they believed Barack Obama was Muslim or not. And Trump was specifically the leader of the birther conspiracy theory. Indeed. I mean, that was that was the water he tested. But the, qu- when he was but the question up. is, Ezra, is to come back again. And I, I keep bringing this back to because I know your listeners are not Trump supporters by and large. And I do think there's a role for all of us to recognize it's easy to bash Trump. It's easy to bash Fox. It's easy to bash the Daily Mail and the far right in Europe. But we have to talk about how it's become normalized. Why is it a respectable racism? How did it pass the dinner table test? What have liberals and leftists done to push back against this bigotry, which has now you know, resulted in concentration camps in China and maybe future con- concentration camps in India and a Muslim ban here in the US. Has there been enough pushback, A, against the Republicans who push this crap? Has there been enough pushback against liberals in our midst, like the Bill Mars and Sam Harris's, who say outrageous things? You know, you talk about replacement theory. Sam Harris was fear-mongering about Muslims, uh, uh, um, Muslim numbers and demographics in France years ago, which he only recently re- uh, very reluctantly apologized for, this idea of Eurabia, of Muslims taking, of Arabs taking over Europe. What have we done to push back against them in our midst? And where have we been when, you know, when this stuff has raised its head? Have we have we turned a blind eye? Obama, as I said, didn't go to a mosque, which I think was a big mistake. Not only that, you know, when he was accused of being Muslim, he put it in like, I think there was an Obama campaign website, which had it in a list of kind of smears, like being called a Muslim. It was almost accepting the terms of debate. And I think Colin Powell, of all people, said it best back in 2008 on Meet the Press. He said, Obama is not a Muslim, but saying that is not enough. You have to go further and say, so what if he was a Muslim? Why would that be a problem? Right. That's a that's a good point. Right. The famous John McCain thing where he says, no, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. He's a good Christian man. Right. The 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 implicit thing there is if he had been a Muslim, maybe he wouldn't have been. And, and I do want to say, I don't think I think John McCain in general did also tried to have a a personally inclusive uh, framework on this. But again, like George, George Except for Bush, his vice presidential pick, exactly, Sarah Palin, who ca- ended up causing a lot of damage. Um, I want to go back to something you said a couple minutes ago about the way a lot of these players have realized maybe anti-Semitism doesn't work as well as it used to, yes. but but anti-Muslim bigotry does. Um, I think the way people think about this, because a lot of the framework we use for this whole conversation comes from the Israel-Palestine conflict, is that anti-Muslim sentiment and uh, anti-Semitism are actually on different sides of a divide. 
But you've written about research showing that anti-Muslim sentiment is very heavily correlated with anti-Semitic sentiment, that these are not two sides of a divide, but actually for uh, a lot of people um, in this debate, they're the same thing. They're both a different kind of other, maybe different arguments for what that other is doing, but that they, they, they go together hand in glove and that there has to be more unity between people facing anti-Muslim and anti-Semitic bigotry than there has been. Can you talk a bit about that research and, yes, and what you take and from I, it? and I'm glad you raised that, Ezra, because it's something I feel very strongly about. And I, and I did write a piece with Jonathan Friedland the Guardian uh, about how Jews and Muslims need to recognize this reality. And sadly, too many people in our respective communities, uh, are not a majority, but significant minorities of people do hold in the Jewish community Islamophobic views and, and in the Muslim community anti-Semitic views. And that, what I always find that uh, not just morally wrong, but just mad and self-defeating when the people who want to kill us both hold both those views. Uh, you know, the guy, you know, the, the, the um, San Diego synagogue shooter, I believe, was the one who, when he was arrested, bragged about having set fire to a mosque a few weeks earlier. Right. And like, so, so I like, here, what do you want to get me for? The mosque or the synagogue? And, you know, a Pew survey in Europe a few years ago found that attitudes towards Jews and Muslims are highly correlated with each other. People who express negative opinions about Muslims are more likely than others to express negative views of Jews. Here in the US, a Gallup study in 2010 found that people who say they feel a great deal of prejudice towards Jews are 32 times as likely to report feeling a great deal of prejudice towards Muslims. My friend Dahlia Mugahid at the ISPU think tank, uh, she has a great line. She says, Islamophobia is one branch of a larger tree of bigotry. And the same soil that grows Islamophobia also grows anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism. And we see that right now in the Republican Party and in the White House, I'm sorry to say. I think that's a good place to come to a close. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you would recommend on this or other topics? Could just be three books you love to the audience. On this subject, uh, I would say my friend Todd Green's book, The Fear of Islam, uh, is a very good primer on this. Uh, he is an academic at Luther College, and uh, he was an advisor to the State Department under Barack Obama on the issue of Islamophobia. You'll be shocked to know there is no advisor on Islamophobia at the State Department uh, anymore. Um, uh, his book is a, a very welcome introduction. Um, my friend Saida Varsi, who is a conservative politician in the UK, she was the first female Muslim cabinet minister uh, promoted by David Cameron, but who is now very frustrated at the at the direction her party has gone in uh, towards the far right and Islamophobic right. Uh, she wrote an excellent book about um, uh, radicalization and Islamism and Islamophobia um, in the UK context, but she also goes global as well. It's called The Enemy Within. And a third book, I would always say read um, Alex Haley's autobiography of Malcolm X, because that's what I read. That's one of the first quote unquote political and quote unquote Muslimy books I read as a teenager, uh, which is both uh, an amazing introduction to an amazing man, but also a fascinating insight into uh, American Islam, both mainstream, uh, uh, mainstream quote unquote uh, mainstream Sunni Islam, which is the majority of Islam of Muslims in America, but also of course the Nation of Islam, uh, which is a much more controversial uh, uh, grouping, which some consider not to be uh, part of Islam. And I think that's an interesting discussion that we don't have in in the US. I do want to make this point before the show is over that when we talk about Muslims in the US, the key point to remember is it's one of the most diverse communities of any faith community in the United States of America. You have uh, the immigrant communities, people like my wife's parents who came here from South Asia, from the Middle East, from India, Pakistan. And then, of course, you have black Muslims, African-American Muslims who, who were here from the very beginning of the country. You know, when we talk about Muslims being the other in the US, you know, America was built by Muslim slaves. 15 to 20 percent of the slaves who came over from Africa 
according to historians, were Muslims. Uh, we often don't talk about their story or their struggle. And I think that should be a much bigger part of the conversation as well. That's a great point. Uh, Mehdi Hassan, thank you very much. Thank you, Ezra. That is the show. Thank you to Mehdi Hassan for being here. Uh, thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. Again, if you want to join me on the book tour uh, in Boston, Seattle, Portland, or LA, go to whyrepolarized.com or ezrakline.com. You can get tickets, you can get books. It's all going to be great. Uh, and of course, my email is ezrakleinshow at vox.com. And the Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs> 